As I mentioned, we are returning to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. We spent most of last year studying through the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, but took a break at late summer and early fall and uh, looked at some other passages of Scripture. But this morning it's time to get back to 1 Corinthians. So we're going to pick up where we left off. The goal this spring is to begin in chapter 12 and begin working through 1 Corinthians again. And if the timing works out right, we're going to be focused on the great chapter of the resurrection, chapter 15, during the time of our celebration of the resurrection at Easter time. So that's something for all of us to look forward to. But for this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll be reading the first 11 verses. Please give your attention to God's inerrant word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I grew up going to church, but unfortunately it is what we'd call a liberal church that didn't focus upon the word of God, that didn't preach the gospel. And so when I think back to all my years growing up in that same church, I remember it as a pretty lifeless place, spiritually speaking. The only lively worship, and I do put that in quotes, the only lively worship that I really experienced during my entire childhood was when my mother, who was a very genuine believer, would take me out into the backwoods where they'd have these semi-Pentecostal tent revivals. And I was always struck by the vast contrast between what I experienced in my church on Sunday morning and what I experienced out under the tent in the woods during those tent revivals. I was very confused by that, especially once I really became a believer. I didn't uh, come to know the Lord. The Lord didn't convert me until late in high school. And so I left home for the first time and went to college and for the first time in my life had to find another church. And so I went to the same denomination as the church I'd grown up in because that was where my comfort level was. But when I got there, I found out that this particular, this local church, would be what I later came to understood as a charismatic church. The leadership there was charismatic. And I had no idea what that term meant at the time. 
fully expected to be just like my church at home, but then they invited me, I think only about a month into my freshman year, they invited me on a weekend retreat. And during that retreat, during the worship service, the people got a whole lot more excited than they typically would get in my former church. A lot of big emotional outbursts. And then all of a sudden people began speaking in what to me sounded like gibberish. I didn't, didn't understand a thing what was going on. And I was quite honestly creeped out by it. I, I, I kind of crept into the corner and was watching with big eyes and gaping mouth, trying to figure out what is this that I've just gotten myself into. And I think one of the leaders recognized that I was stunned by this. And so he pulled me aside afterwards and he said, would you be interested in meeting with me once a week so that I could disciple you into the experiencing of these spiritual gifts? I was like, well, if this is what Christians do, then yeah, I guess I need to find out more about it. So I agreed to meet with him weekly where he tried to teach me how to get a what he called a second blessing of the Holy Spirit and to acquire a prayer language, as he called it, a, a language that uh, is not understandable to anybody but me and God. And, and I did that for several weeks, several awkward weeks. And I eventually failed out, flunked out of the system, and left that experience very confused and feeling very guilty, and like I was a failure as a Christian. Well, then, shortly after that, I got involved with Presbyterians. <laughs> and quite honestly, didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. And so it's really been kind of a lifelong quest for me to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what these gifts of the Spirit are all about. Back then, back in those days, I don't hear it much anymore, but back then the common question that Christians, some Christians would ask other Christians was, is your church a spirit-filled church? And I came to learn that when they asked that question, what they were really asking was, do you have these exotic gifts in your church? Do you have people speaking in tongues? Do you have people giving words of prophecy? And so that really became an important question. Is that what a spirit-filled church looks like? You know, the, the implication was that if your church didn't exhibit these kind of miraculous gifts in the normal worship and life of the church, then at the very best, you were quenching the Holy Spirit, and at the worst, you were forsaken by the Holy Spirit. Well, this is not a new question. It's not a new controversy in the church. It's been going on. It's been especially intense in the last hundred years or so, but it's been going on at one level or another within the history of the church, and obviously going all the way back to the first century. Because Paul had to deal with serious questions about spiritual gifts, even at this very early part of church history after the resurrection of Christ. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, if you remember from our earlier studies, if you were with us in the summer and spring, our other studies in 1 Corinthians, we saw there that 1 Corinthians, as you look at the whole book, it's kind of choppy. It's, it's, it, Paul kind of goes from topic to topic to topic, and that's because he's not trying to write one long treatise like he does in the book of Romans. Here, he's responding. It's more like a Q&A. He's responding 
to reports that he had heard about questions and problems that the church in Corinth was having, and also answering questions that the church had sent to him directly in their letter. And so he will kind of very suddenly shift topics. Um, There are certainly themes that run through the topics, but here we see another shift to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the first 11 chapters, he looked at questions like worldly wisdom. The church seemed to be infatuated with the wisdom of the world. And so he dealt with that. And then he dealt with divisions in the church. These Christians, there's a lot of infighting in the church in Corinth. And so he addressed that problem. There was unrepentant, scandalous sexual sin going on in the church that the church leadership wasn't dealing with. So Paul addresses that issue. He brought up the issue of Christian going to court against other Christians, bringing up lawsuits against other Christians. And he addresses and rebukes that. There was a long section we looked at where he deals with a prevalent problem in that culture that these Gentile people who were Gentiles, pagans before they were Christians, were still participating in some of the temple activities, particularly the issue was eating at the temple, pagan temple feasts, meat that had been offered to idols. And they were, Paul spends a long time teaching the nuances of how to deal with that issue, that cultural issue in Corinth. And then in the last section we saw, he begins to deal with issues that related to worship, head coverings, and then also the last section we looked at last time was issues around the Lord's Supper. And that continues now because as we talk about gifts of the Spirit, a lot of the questions, a lot of the issues he has to address revolve around how these gifts of the Spirit manifest themselves in first century worship. And so he's going to begin to address what we will see in coming weeks was a lot of confusion and chaos and abuse of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth, especially in the area of worship, which had become in Corinth very man-centered, very chaotic. And so the Holy Spirit here is addressing his church. The Holy Spirit is going to correct the Corinthian church, in their misunderstandings and abuses of spiritual gifts through the Apostle Paul in what we're going to be studying in the coming weeks. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't begin by specifically addressing the problems. He actually doesn't get to a lot of the specifics until we get to chapter 14. But in this introductory passage that we read this morning, he goes to the real heart of the issue. And I think we need to take note of the fact that he feels the most important issue, the most the most important thing he needs to address to correct the problems in Corinth is to address the intentions, the purposes, the goals of the Holy Spirit in giving any gifts to the church. And that's helpful for us to see. We need to begin there. Before I get into that, I need to briefly address the elephant in the room. I know you're all waiting for me to tip my hand as to my particular interpretation of the miraculous gifts in particular because they are the focus so much of these next few chapters. Things like speaking in tongues and miracles, healings and things like that. Should we expect the kind of miraculous gifts that are talked about here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, should we expect that to be a normal part of the ministry and worship of the church today? So it's a very controversial question. We call these gifts the extraordinary gifts, things that involve things that are supernatural to the appearance, 
course, every spiritual gift is supernatural, but to the appearance, some of them are more dramatically so. And so we saw these things. We do see them throughout the book of Acts taking place. But the question is, should we expect them to continue to take place in the life of the church from the book of Acts on? Well, there could be months of discussion of that question, and I'm not even going to attempt to get into it in any depth this morning. I'm just going to throw out one thing for you to consider, and it will tip my hand as to how I interpret passages like this. I want to, first of all, talk about the distinction between miracles that God does and believer-mediated miracles that God does. In both cases, God does miracles. God either does miracles where he intervenes directly and does something supernatural, something against the the order of nature. He does miracles directly. But sometimes in biblical history, he does believer-mediated miracles. In other words, he gives a gift, so to speak, to an individual believer to be able to perform miracles in the name of the Lord. And so that's the kind of miracles that we're focusing on, believer-mediated miracles, miracles that are done through a person, whether by laying hands on someone or raising a staff or just declaring a healing, where it's done through a person. And I want to just ask you to think about, as you look at the whole course of Scripture, how and when do believer-mediated miracles tend to happen in Scripture? And the first thing you realize is that even if you're only confining yourself to biblical history, which takes us from creation up until the end of the first century A.D., if you just look at the period of biblical history, it's obvious immediately that those kinds of of believer-mediated miracles didn't happen all the time. Matter of fact, in the whole course of history, biblical history, they're relatively uncommon. So if you were to, to basically lay out a timeline from creation until the end of the first century, and you were to plot on that timeline, where do you see believer-mediated miracles taking place? They would tend to cluster, I would say, and test me on this, they would tend to cluster around three periods of time, three limited periods of time. The first era of believer-mediated miracles that we see in Scripture is what? Moses. Moses and the exodus from Egypt, ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke. Moses was granted the ability to perform miracles in the name of the Lord, and to lead the people out of slavery, to lead them to the promised land, and particularly at Mount Sinai, where the law of God was revealed from heaven. There's where you see a lot of of believer-mediated miracles. The second period where you tend to see that kind of thing is during the period of the prophets, the later part of the Old Testament, what we call the period of the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elisha, as they kind of inaugurated that era of God sending prophets, writing prophets. There are prophets throughout the Old Testament here and there, but particularly the writing prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament. You have Elijah and Elisha, they're their period of their lives, especially full of believer-mediated miracles. Well, what's the third era of believer-mediated miracles? Jesus and the apostles, of course. Jesus performed miracles. The apostles performed miracles in the name of the Lord. And there you have, basically, the three sections of Scripture, don't you? The law, the prophets, and the New Testament, the New Covenant. 
I don't think it's any accident that believer-mediated miracles tend to happen around the great moments in redemptive history. The greatest moments in redemptive history. The revealing of the law, the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and the arrival of the Messiah and the establishment of the church, the day of Pentecost and all that. Those were miraculous periods. Those were times when believer-mediated miracles happened, I don't know how commonly, but they certainly were, were prevalent during those period of times. But think about even biblical history. You don't tend to see these kinds of miracles being done in other periods of biblical history, or if you know anything about church history, you don't tend to see it after the time of Jesus and the apostles. Think about the miracles that are done in Scripture, the ones that are mediated through human beings. One thing you notice, again, as you take the 20,000-foot view of Scripture and look at the broad view, is that God doesn't do those miracles through individuals primarily to impress people, to show how powerful he is, to show his presence. That's not the primary reason, is it? Second, it's also the primary reason of those believer-mediated miracles is not to alleviate suffering. He did, Jesus healed the sick and the lame, raised the dead, certainly, but the primary purpose was not to alleviate suffering. Also, the primary purpose was not to change the circumstances of the individual to make them more comfortable and prosperous in this world. That's not why Jesus did miracles. That's not why the apostles did miracles. That's not why Moses did miracles. Why did they do miracles? Why did God, the, God through his spirit, give these individuals the ability to perform miracles? Why? It's because they were spokesmen for God. These three periods we're talking about, the law, the prophets, and the New Testament, these three periods are the three great periods where scripture is being written down and passed down to every generation of believer. And it is crucial that we understand that those who give this revelation directly from God to be written down, to be handed down to us as God's written word, that we understand that they were God's spokesmen. And that's the purpose of believer-mediated miracles. Many people, many, many people in the history of the world have claimed to speak for God. These signs are given to know which ones really did. Remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus when he met with him in John chapter 3? The first thing he said to Jesus was, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, he got it. He understood the purpose of the miracles that Jesus was performing to show that he had come from God to bring us the word of God. So yes, that is my presupposition, so to speak, as we start to study these passages based on what I see in the rest of Scripture, the purpose of these kinds of miracles is that now that revelation is complete, now that God has given us all of the spoken revelation that we need to have in writing so that we have the word of God, complete and sufficient in and of itself, now that that's complete, we don't need miracles to authenticate God's spokesman any longer. That doesn't mean that God doesn't still do miracles. He does. But he doesn't do it to authenticate spokesmen anymore. There's no need to mediate miracles through individuals anymore. If God's going to do a miracle, he's free to do it as he pleases. I will throw this one caveat in. God is free to do whatever he wants to do. 
And I do hear stories sometimes on the mission field where the gospel is penetrating a dark area where it's never been before that sometimes sounds a lot like what happens in the book of Acts. I'm, I'm not going to say that God's not in that. I'm not saying that God's not, gonna, not doing that. So this is my caveat. It's not God's normal way of working in the church. It's extraordinary, and God is free to work in extraordinary ways and extraordinary circumstances. But once the church is established, there's no need for that. We are to rely on this word of God, not look to spokesmen for God, for revelation. So that's the elephant in the room. I've not said all that I'm going to say on that subject, but I wanted you to know where I'm coming from as we dig into these passages. Here in chapter 12, let me go back to what I said a few moments ago. Here in chapter 12, Paul's intent in these first 11 verses is to talk about what the Spirit's intentions are in giving gifts to the church. I think Paul, I know Paul understands that part of the reason that these Corinthian Christians were so confused and and doing so many wrong things and abusing the gifts is because they didn't understand the Spirit's intention in giving the gifts in the first place. And so that's what Paul's talking about in this entire section. At Christmas time, my wife and I opened the small, you know, when, when your kids all move away from home, you really don't have many presents under the tree, and the gift opening time doesn't last very long. But on, we were leaving early on Christmas morning, and so we opened up our presents. And I had a present from my mother-in-law, and she always gives a present. So I'm, I'm opening it, and when I got it out, it was a wooden alligator pool toy. And needless to say, I was confused by the gift. And I was for several minutes. As a matter of fact, maybe just a little insulted by the gift. But, but anyway, it took me a few minutes, and suddenly it dawned on me. I have grandchildren now. She gave me the gift of an alligator pool toy so that I would have it in my house when my grandchildren came to visit. And therefore, it was a very thoughtful gift and useful gift in that way. But you see my point. It made a difference what the giver's intention was. If I thought her intention was to make a statement on my emotional maturity, then I would have been (laughs) greatly insulted. But once I understood the motivation of the giver, then I could use the gift the way it was intended. And that's the issue we're dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 12. Why does the Holy Spirit give gifts to his people? Well, Paul starts by talking about the goal. For what's purpose? What, what, not, not purpose, but what, what's the end purpose? What's, what end goal is the Holy Spirit trying to accomplish by giving spiritual gifts to believers? And that's what he talks about beginning in verse 2. He says, he, in, that, in that verse, he's, he's talking primarily to Gentile Christians. There are Jewish Christians in this church in Corinth, but it's predominantly a Gentile church. And he speaks to these Gentile Christians. He says, remember what Christ saved you from. Remember the way you used to live. Remember the way you used to worship as a pagan idol worshiper. And he says in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. You were led astray to worship mute idols. It's a passive verb there. that They were led by something or someone to become idol worshipers. And we know that something or someone he's referring to because he talked about it back in chapter 10. Now remember, being too caught up in the ways and thinking of the world was a big problem in Corinth. It was a very worldly church. It had not 
fully turned from darkness to light. It was still hanging on to and clinging some of the old ways, and it factors into some of their problems in worship. But he says, you know, you were led astray. You were led into that lifestyle that you used to live in as a pagan idol worshiper. Remember what he said back in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. He says, what pagans sacrifice, talking about pagan worship, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and of demons. So what was leading them astray? Demons. He's making it clear that idol worship, false worship, and I think it's something we need to take seriously even today when it comes to false worship, any kind of false worship. There is a, there is a spiritual presence involved in that. There is a spiritual presence that's trying to lead people astray from the truth, away from the true God. It's a demonic presence that's, that's there in the idol worship, he says. It's leading you astray. What's interesting, if you know the first century, you know the history of the first century and the culture of the Roman Empire, during that time, what they called mystery religions were very popular. And a lot of characteristics of mystery religions, but one of them was that the worship practices of the mystery religions in the Roman Empire often involved people getting really emotionally worked up into a frantic state, kind of an ecstasy of of emotion, that they had services that were intended to produce that. And it wasn't uncommon, you still see it today in some forms of false worship, that they get so emotionally caught up that they end up speaking in gibberish. And so, again, it's part of my understanding of what kind of misunderstanding and chaos was going on in the worship of the first century church, in Corinth in particular, was that they were still not turning entirely away from those old worship practices. And they were combining what was being taught to them about true biblical worship and the work of the Holy Spirit with what they had known in their former pagan idol-worshiping background. It's interesting that Paul points out to them that you are led astray to a mute idol. (laughs) The idol can't speak, but supposedly you're saying that I'm able to worship this idol by speaking in a miraculous way. Well, verse 3, he talks about the two directions of the two worship. He says, now, he talks about people that were cursing Jesus, And we don't know if he's actually addressing some kind of worship practice in the pagan worship. It's possible, commentators don't know, it's possible that the pagan worship services actually featured cursing this Jesus that the the Christians follow. That's possible. But I think it's more likely that Paul is just contrasting the intent, the goal of the two spiritual presences. The demonic presence in false worship was leading people, whether they acknowledge it or not, ultimately to curse, to reject Christ and curse him. Whereas true worship, here's where we get to the point, true worship involves the Holy Spirit leading sinners to proclaim Jesus is Lord. That's the purpose of biblical worship, is to put the ancient creed, the first creed, we talk about the creeds of the church in history, that was the first creed of the church, Jesus is Lord. It was a creed that first century Christians and second century Christians and third century Christians died for. When they said to them, you must proclaim that Caesar is Lord, they said, no, Jesus is Lord. The powerful creed. 
And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. The goal of worship is to lead people to have on their lips and in their heart the statement, Jesus is Lord. To live, to submit to, and to glorify him as Lord, and to obey him in all things. And that is still the test of a spirit-filled church. Is your church spirit-filled? Simple answer to that question. Yes, my church is spirit-filled because my church points by the power of the Spirit to Jesus as Lord and leads people to live according to that. We'll see that the way the, Christian, the Corinthian Christians were viewing and using the spiritual gifts was a very self-centered way. It led people to glorifying themselves and being obsessed with themselves instead of glorifying Christ as Lord. The way that the Corinthian Christians were using these supposed gifts in their worship was leading to division in the church, not unification in the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way they were using the gifts was making them look like the world instead of causing them to stand apart from the world living under the Lordship of Christ. That brings me to the second teaching that Paul has about the proper intention of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that they are to reflect the unity of the triune God. The next section, look at verses 4 through 6. You have to look a little carefully to see this, but he actually mentions or infers all three persons in the Trinity. We believe in one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all one God. He mentions all three in verses 4 through 6. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. And Lord in New Testament means Jesus Christ. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God. And in this context, we understand that to mean God the Father. So the Spirit gives a variety of gifts. The Lord Jesus calls people to a variety of service. And God the Father empowers and, 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 increase, and, and, and creates the impact of that ministry through the gifts of the Spirit. So let me just break down each one of those quickly. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts. These are gifts that Jesus Christ won for the people of God at the cross. He won the gifts that the Spirit gives at the cross and applies them, he says, verse, Paul says in verse 7, to each one, each believer, he says, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 11, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul is stressing there that every believer has the Spirit and every believer is gifted by the Spirit. Very important. Paul is stressing that. Do you notice how precisely he makes the language say that? Every individual believer has the Spirit and is gifted by the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There aren't two tiers of Christians. There aren't once-blessed Christians and twice-blessed Christians. There aren't spiritual Christians and non-spiritual Christians. There's only one kind of Christian, and that's a Christian who has the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, what Paul is saying here is you have been gifted by the Spirit. Each one, each one of you, just just chew on that a second. Each one of you, if you're a true believer in Christ, 
has at least one gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have several. Many of you have several. But everybody has at least one. Every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit. And notice that Paul stresses in verse 11 that the the Spirit distributes those gifts sovereignly according to his will, not according to our will. In other words, you can't demand a gift of the Spirit. You can't say, I want this gift. That's not how it works. Remember Simon Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, in Acts chapter 8? He pleaded with the apostles, give me the gift to do the kind of miracles that you do. And Peter rebuked him. So it doesn't work that way. And the Lord rebuked you for being so, you know, wanting to glorify yourself that you want the, the splashy gifts. We're going to see if that becomes an issue here in Corinth. Because the Corinthian Christians had fallen into that. They wanted the showy gifts. But they didn't want the more important ones, the more permanent ones. So the Spirit gives gifts sovereignly. The Lord Jesus gives a variety of service. The word there we get the word deacon from. Mercy ministry, service. The Lord calls us to ministries. Some translations translate that ministries. The Lord Jesus gives us our calling. The Holy Spirit gives us the gifts to enable us to do the calling that the Lord Jesus gives us. And then finally says God the Father is the source of the varieties of activities. And the word activities there is the word we get energy from. And most commentators think, most translators think, that he's not really talking about the empowerment so much as the effect. That the result of it all is that God impacts the church. God impacts the town. God impacts the state. God impacts the country. God impacts the world for the kingdom of Christ. And you notice what Paul is stressing here is that we've got this beautiful diversity of the giving of gifts All these varieties of gifts and varieties of callings and varieties of impacts, but there's one God behind it all. One God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is behind it all. And so what Paul is pointing us to here is that the church in its worship and ministry is to reflect the very nature of God. Because that's what the Trinity, that the scriptures teach us, that's what the Trinity is all about. We have one God in three persons. We have unity and diversity. And the church is to reflect that in the way that we, we operate and worship in the world. The church must strive to be godly. We must strive to reflect unity in diversity. That's what a spirit-filled church looks like. The intention of the Holy Spirit is to give us gifts so that we can carry out the ministries that Christ has called us to, so that we can have impact by the power of God the Father for the sake of the kingdom in this fallen world. And I, you know, you think about how this does, we were talking about worship so much in these chapters. I see it happen every Sunday. It's a beautiful thing. Unity and diversity of gifts. Unity of purpose, unity of goal, and a diversity of gifts. I get a, a, a unique vantage point to be able to see how what a huge team almost army of people it takes in order for God's people to gather for worship on Sunday morning and have a powerful transformative encounter with the living God so many people have to employ their gifts people that are working all week long we start on Monday talking about how we need to prepare 
for you to come and worship. And we have so many people during the week, people that have gifts in working with children, people who have gifts in, in administration, people who have gifts who, in, in music, people who have gifts in leading worship, people who have gifts in preaching. And God brings it all together. And we're like a big orchestra preparing for this great encounter with God. And when the Holy Spirit gifts us and we use our gifts according to our calling and then God the Father shows up in a powerful way, lives are transformed here. Unity through diversity. And it reflects God himself. The third section speaks to the purpose of the gifts. We talked about the goal. We talked about the unity Now we need to talk about the purpose of the gifts. Purpose is different from goal. Purpose speaks to mission. Goal speaks to to the, the end product, the end of the whole process. The goal of the gifts is to bring sinners to say Jesus is Lord and live that way. But the purpose of the gifts, how we reach that goal, is stated in verse 7. Look at what he says there. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's the phrase, for the common good. You know where Paul expounds upon that at length? In a gloriously beautiful chapter in Ephesians 4. Let me read it for you, just parts of it. Ephesians 4. I want you to notice, as I read this, the common themes, basically Paul's saying the same thing as he says in verse 7. He's saying it at length here in chapter 4. Listen to what he says of Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what Paul's talking about. That's a spirit-filled church. That's a church that uses its gifts and its callings to build one another up into maturity in Christ so that we become not just godly, but more specifically, Christ-like as a body of believers. That's the purpose of the gifts. And I'm going to take about three minutes, bear with me, and I'm going to run through nine very controversial spiritual gifts that Paul mentions here. And I'm just going to give you a a short synopsis on each one. In verses 8 through 11, Paul lists nine different spiritual gifts. And most of them, if maybe not even all of them to some degree, have a supernatural first century apostolic quality to them. And they're, they're miraculous to a certain degree, supernatural. And I think Paul names, there's many gifts. The New Testament lists 20 different types of gifts, but those 20 aren't all of them. It's just a representative list. And the, verse, the nine that he chooses here, I think, represent the problem areas in the church at Corinth, as we'll see it play out in the next couple of chapters. 
These are the ones that the Corinthians were confused about. Let me just go through the list quickly. Utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge, which are similar but not the same. These might be related to the giving of revelation in the first century, the the giving of the written word of God that happened in the time of the apostles. It also may very well have an ongoing form that takes place after revelation is complete in terms of a special gift of wisdom, a special gift of knowledge given to some in the church. All Christians who have the fear of the Lord are wise. All Christians have knowledge of God and his word. But some may be specially gifted. And certainly in the first century, some were gifted with supernatural revelation of God's wisdom and, his, and knowledge of God. Second list, gifty list is faith. And again, all believers have faith. If, you're not, if you don't have faith in Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't know God. But some may be gifted with a special measure of faith, the kind of faith that Jesus said that can move mountains. There may be a special gift of a a specially firm faith that God gives to some. Prophecy, at the very least, refers to that first century gift to receive a word of God and communicate it to others directly from God, but very well might speak to an ongoing gift of declaring the, the, the already revealed word of God, which we would call preaching. It may be related, and there's a big debate in the church about does the gift of prophecy in the New Testament relate to preaching, or is it only referring to that uh, ability to give revelation directly from God? It was especially important in the first century. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. This is... This is you know, all, all kinds of people were claiming to speak for God, even many were claiming to speak for Christ, but they needed to be able to distinguish between the spirits. When a prophecy is given, they needed to be able to distinguish between true spirits and false spirits, true, true apostles or God's spokesmen or false apostles or false prophets. And so there needed to be a gift of discernment, and so Paul makes reference to that. But still, discernment between truth and error is a precious gift in the church. Finally, I actually skipped over the healing and miracles. Obviously, these were the signs and wonders that we talk about in the first century. And again, these weren't to relieve suffering, to promote earthly prosperity or wellness or good circumstances, but to point to God's spokesmen, the apostles, and to strengthen faith in the truth that they are revealing. And then finally, you've got tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in weeks to come, especially when we get to chapter 14. But this, my understanding is this, the legitimate gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language that you had not previously learned, and the interpretation of tongues was the gift to be able to interpret a language that you had not previously learned. So it was a miraculous gift related to known languages that hadn't been learned. And what it appears is that the Corinthian church had confused that gift with counterfeit pagan practices. Three minutes of some of the most controversial topics in worship in the church today. I'm sorry I did you a great disservice by even mentioning them and not really digging into them, but we'll do that in weeks to come. I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees, though. We can argue back and forth. We can debate the right interpretation of Scripture in regard to these gifts, but don't miss the forest for the trees. Paul's point here is that these gifts have a purpose. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts of the Spirit are given for the building up of the body of Christ, the church. They are for God's glory, not for man's glory. And I want to ask you this question. 
If you're a believer, if you're born again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. How are you using it? Are you using it to build up the body of Christ for the glory of God? Or are you using it for your earthly status, respect, reputation, prosperity, and comfort in this world? That's not why the gifts are given. They are given to build up the body of Christ, the church, and to bring glory to God. And yet we tend to use them so selfishly. I I talk to a lot of intelligent people living in State College. And there is a gift of knowledge and wisdom that believers have that's beyond human knowledge. But I also know a lot of believers, and I'm guilty of this myself at times, where I will use that gift of wisdom and knowledge that God has given for my own glory, for my own status, for my own level of respect among men, instead of using it for the glory of God and to build up the church. How are you gifted? What has God given you as a spiritual gift or many spiritual gifts? And how are you using them? Is the church benefiting? We need you. Because the whole picture is given here is that we're this great orchestra. We are to put together all of the gifts that we've given, the instruments we're given, the opportunities we're given, the callings we're given, and we are to create this beautifully coordinated, spirit-given declaration, hymn of praise to the Lord who redeemed us. Are you participating? Are you using your gifts for this great purpose? Why does the Holy Spirit give gifts to us? Let me just remind you, three things. To create a people who say and really believe that Jesus is Lord. That's why the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church. Second reason he gives gifts to the church is to reflect the unity and diversity that is the very nature of God himself and the way that he operates. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then finally, he gives gifts to the church so that we can employ them to the benefit of one another, to the building up of the church, so that we as a church body can be more like Christ. To the degree to which that describes us as a church, we are a spirit-filled church. I say that without any reservation. We are a spirit-filled church because we are using the gifts that he has given for his purpose, but we have a long way to go to be more filled with the Spirit. And that's the challenge the New Testament lays before all believers, to be filled with the Spirit more and more, to be like his intent implies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gifts that he's given. As we dig deep into some of these difficult-to-understand chapters to come, I pray, Lord, that you would give us patience, that you give us knowledge, you give us wisdom, you give us unity in the Spirit as we wrestle through these issues together. And may Christ be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.